I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Liz Savile-Roberts, who is the Plaid Cymru MP for Dwyffle Merioneth. Liz, counterintuitively, you're not Welsh, are you, originally? You're brought up in South East London. Brought up in South East London, yet I'm not Welsh by... By pedigree, by breeding, although I am by choice and I've lived in Wales now for more than I've ever lived in London. But I grew up in Eltham in south-east London, went to school in Eltham and Blackheath and finally in Avery Hill College, which was where I did the international baccalaureate rather than A-levels. And I was very fortunate I was the last year when this was funded by the GLC. So it was a state-funded course. And as part of the International Baccalaureate, then, I presume is still the same case, you write an extended essay. And I had read, my father gave me a copy of the Mabinogi, an English version, and I I read the the Mabinogi as a whole and, of course, the the four main branches of the Mabinogi. And I decided, really, well, it was going to be either going to Aberystwyth, hopefully, or to study to, to, to follow Celtic studies as a degree, or to go to art school in London. Did your father have the Welsh connections? I, hadn't, I have no Welsh connections whatsoever. My, my so, father is a Huguenot background, going back, going back, going back. That's where the Savile, which is a French Huguenot name, Huguenot name comes from. And my mother is from a, a, an, an old Wiltshire family. Good Lord. So how was he interested in the Mabinogion? Well, as I said, my, my father gave me this book basically. I think probably one of the things that led me into this book was also a book by Alan Garner called The Owl Service, uh, which is based on the fourth branch of the Mabinogi, set, I guess, in the 70s. Uh, It was a well-known children's series, dramatisation in the 70s, and it was filmed in Dinas Maldwy, which is now in the constituency of Duyvon Merionet. And that may well have been sort of my first connection with the Mabinogi, but then reading this mythology, reading from that into Irish mythology as well. I had this choice of going in either direction, and Aberystwyth University very kindly gave me a, a, a good offer to go and study there. So that's the way I went. <laughs> so you can see these tracks, you could go, your life could go in different ways, and that's how it went. And what exactly did you read at uh, Aberystwyth? The title of the degree was Celtic Studies, but effectively that meant studying Welsh and Irish. So I I learnt Welsh from scratch, and they had a very effective arrangement for doing that at the time, where you, you started in the first year as a beginner. They would send you to Lampeter to follow the, the old pan course in Lampeter. I was extremely lucky in 84 because the National Assembly was in Lampeter as well, so it was, a, it was busier than possibly it might be in some summers to be there. And then you go in in the second year, back in then in the 80s, with people who arrived at the university with second language Welsh. And come your third year, everybody was together. First language, second language, people who'd begun to learn Welsh at university. And you had to write your essays in Welsh. And that was the critical point, because my essay writing, I mean, my grammar was appalling. I can remember one lecturer, John Rowlands, actually, probably he kept me going when I was at the, the, the door of desperation. Because if you'd marked the correctness of my grammar, the paper would have been covered in corrections. But he would do the grammar, and then he would also have something to say about what I was trying to say, which actually was the whole point. But on the other hand, writing your essays in Welsh means you've actually, you don't get caught up with the time lapse. 
You know, when you're speaking to somebody and you can't say something, with Welsh people tend to switch into English because they're being polite and they want to help you to communicate. When you're writing something and you're you're ambitious in what you want to say, you you've got the time to work out what you want to say. So for me, that probably was a really useful way of getting sort of over the hump of talking about more about more than just your family and the weather, actually talking about more ambitious, more challenging subjects. And obviously in Aberystwyth there's a fair amount of Welsh spoken anyway. Were you actually in um, Pantacellan? I was never in Pantacellan, although I had lots of friends and I stayed over in Pantacellan quite a lot. I was in John Williams, which was the other Welsh hall at the time, although that's long gone. And I miss it, actually, I really enjoyed living in town rather than being constantly among students so you could escape from students a bit. (laughs) So what did you have in mind as a career when you were studying Celtic studies? I had no idea. I think there were a number of us who were quite determined not to become teachers having studied for many people in the Welsh Department because that seemed to be the obvious direction for many people to go to become teachers. So I was at a bit of a loose end and I I followed a course at College Ceredigion which was bilingual uh, person assistant, secretary job. Having learnt Welsh, that was then the singular most useful course that I did because it actually equipped me, equipped me at one stage with really quite fast shorthand, which I have since lost, of course, but also actually a way of being organised, how you should approach organising texts, how you should approach organising your, your working life. So that was a sort of a year of doing that. I finished with that. I came back, again, still at a loose end, I came back to London and worked in London for a couple of years, firstly as a secretary in the Russian department, Queen Mary College. You and didn't, you didn't learn Russian? Though. I learned a bit of Russian, Did yes. You? Yeah. yeah. Um, we corresponded with the with the KGB over students in the Ukraine. And <laughs> quite again, quite an interesting time. That was of course was the time when the wall came down in um, in, in East Germany. And and then I, I I then worked for a small commercial magazine called Retail News Agent, again here in London. But there was a part of me that was really thinking well, you you're you are an English girl. You've made this investment in 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 learning Welsh, and more than that, that that really mattered to me. And again, this feeling that your life is at a crossroads. You could either spend the rest of your life in London, or make the leap and go back to Wales and make something of having learnt Welsh. And it was more than just learning a medium. I mean, from from then on in, it's always been this sense strongly that when you were in Wales. You belong to somewhere where, as an individual, you can make a, ma- a difference. Now, there may be a 100,000 glittering opportunities somewhere like London, but you're never going to make the same sort of difference as you can in communities in Wales. So I was... Fortunately, I got a, had an interview and I got offered a job as a news reporter with the Hollyhead and Anglesey Mail. And that brought me back to Hollyhead, to, to Anglesey. And I've, I've lived between Anglesey, but for far the greatest time in, in, in Penllyn, first in Llythfine and then in Nevin, Morvan Evin. I've lived, you know, I've, it's fair to say people make this thing about me not being Welsh, but I have spent more than two thirds of the greatest part of my life has been spent in, in, in Wales, far more than, than in London. So how long were you a journalist for? I was a journalist with, between Holyhead and the Carnarvon and Denby in Portelli for three years. By which time I'd met my husband. We then had twin daughters back in 93. And colleague Marion Duvor opened. That for South Gwynedd, all the schools, all the schools at that time lost their sixth form. So this was a, a, a new structure, a new college 
between Dolgetla and Portelli to teach all the sixth form subjects and many vocational subjects. In in the intervening time, actually, Escola Berwin and Bala, they got their sixth form back, but at one stage it was all, all, all the sixth forms were there. And I got a job with them. Um, and having, I must submit, we, you know, I was with the NUJ, I was a journalist. When I was offered a job with the college, uh, my salary suddenly went up, which it hadn't done with the paper for really all the time I was with them. And I suddenly had holidays. And um, quite early on, I was a union, I became a union rep with ICAC, the Welsh Teachers Union. Mm-hmm. The one thing at the back of my mind that made me perhaps not the best union rep I would like to have been was I still kept thinking, wow, this is so good <laughs> after having the, the, the terms and conditions of working in newspapers. And it was all the way along, working with young people sort of the age of sort of 16 to 19, is immensely gratifying, particularly with vocational students, because you really get that sense. You get these these sharp, bright young people who just haven't fitted in at school. And you did know with us, too, that although the sixth form is ideal for some sorts of young people, but there are some who, if they'd stayed in school, the perception of who they were and that they weren't going to be achievers would have stuck with them. And when they came to college, it was a real second chance. And that's one of those real gratifications was that sense of working with people who you could help to make a difference in their own lives. So what were you teaching them? So I ended up teaching almost everything that involved communication at the beginning because it was a pretty small college in some of these really rural areas. So communication on a range of vocational courses and Welsh second language. And I gradually shifted to being in charge of some of the vocational business courses. And then I shifted out of teaching within the college to be in charge of projects to develop bilingual education post-16 in all the colleges of Wales and and a number of the Welsh medium schools. And again, if I must say, what interested me about that is this idea of we're very good in Gwynedd and we are very good in Wales as a whole of developing Welsh as an educational medium. In many ways, we are the envy of many other minority languages or languages that are trying to grow in the way that we've used our education system. But there is a risk there because... At the age of 16, you leave compulsory education, and there you choose what you do, and you also choose whether you want to use Welsh or not. So rather than it being a, in many ways, an expected stroke compulsory question within the school, that you're, when you're in school up to 16, you do effectively what the curriculum is. You know, there's, a, there's a range of choice, but the school gives you the curriculum and you choose amongst those what, 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 what's offered. But at 16 then young people move on to choose to do what they hope, what they aspire will be useful to them in their adult life. So if then, amongst what the skills that they gain, they also choose to continue to use Welsh, then that is their own choice and they're choosing it because it's part of their community, because it's what they want to do with their friends, because it's useful for them in their future life, because somebody, you know, some of the workplaces that they've gone to have told them it would be useful to have it. So it's a real indicator of how successfully Welsh is being developed in Wales as to move it on, not just the A-level students, although that's wonderful, but very much the vocational students. And I felt that in Gwynedd because they were the ones who were going to stay. We knew that for sure. So working with that again was, was this, this sense of how do we give the best advantage to our young people and it's presented to them as something that they want to do rather than something that's just part of the curriculum of the, the school that they happen to attend up to the age of 16. And by that stage, you had become very committed to the Welsh language, not simply as a 
means of study, but also as part of a, a whole cultural movement, I imagine. Well, yes. I mean, I, I lived, I still live in, in Penllyn, this real sense in Gwynedd of, of, of different cultures interacting and how that can be as 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 beneficial to the Welsh language culture, but at the same time for it to be welcoming to everybody else. I mean, the, the one wonderful thing about a language is that a language is not dependent upon your, your pedigree. You, you come in, as uh, Flann O'Brien, Miles O'Gopling once said, you know, you're, he was almost an Irish speaker. You're always improving your language. So one of the things for people to use Welsh and it not to be perfect doesn't matter. You're using it. That's what matters. And it does... Uh, I will stand up to people who say that everything has to be perfectionist and who are looking to score points that your Welsh is not good enough. No, it is. People who are using using it, the language is as alive as its latest speaker. And that the way of bringing it in, and it not just being from, for people from a certain background and for somebody from my background or from anybody else, that the inclusivity of community in Wales is this mix between English and Welsh and the fact that there's a really blurred line there and that we're welcoming people in across, to, to use that, which is all tied in with this sense of belonging, which is one of the the great benefits that I have found for myself personally, knowing my background here in London, which, again, you have so many opportunities here. But as an individual, the reward, the enrichment of belonging to a society where you can make a difference, and the Welsh language is one of those markers for it, for me in Wales. And yet sometimes the approach of some Welsh speakers has not been quite as benevolent as that. Uh, I'm thinking back to the early part of the century when there was a huge row which related to some comments that were made by a Plaid Cymru councillor at the time, his name was Glyn, who was very defensive of his community but worried about the arrival of migrants, in-migrants, from England. That's always a difficult question, isn't it? Because there are also there are other people who stray into the realms of racism, perhaps. Uh, I mean, there are some Welsh nationalist racists who just don't like English people. There are racists in every community, and as a healthy society, we've got to call that out for what it is. What I do say in somewhere like Penllyn is a discrepancy in the economy and the economic capacity, and those are concerns. I, I have 27-year-old daughters. These are the twins that were born back in 93. And I look at their generation and you, you wonder that what are the jobs that will be there for them that are not government living wage, which is a posh word for minimum wage. What is the discrepancy between that which they're being paid, what's available to them, and where they're going to live? And how we then express these concerns up against people who are able to to move in and buy multiple properties, how do we legitimately express those concerns? Because they are legitimate. And what is the sort of society which we want in the future? Well, this is what politics is all about. But one of the things that I would always be arguing, and, and, and in some ways I am fortunate in that I can argue it, because obviously I argue it with an English accent, but I can turn around and say, look, there, there is a social injustice in the way that we are if you like, even where we're apportioning economic development, it sounds boring, but it's true. Which areas get that money? 
how we are approaching what, what do we do with houses? What do we expect housing to be available? Who do we expect it to be available to? Who will we enable because they have capital behind them? And who do we prevent because they haven't? And what can we do about that in all that right of questions? So I mean, the, the political, that is thrown back to Plaid Cymru, this sense that you are challenging something on the basis of race. Well, that's pretty disingenuous, frankly. You know, that's, it's, it's one of those arguments that is thrown against us. Let's look at this for the, the question of social justice and the social economy, because otherwise, what do we want Wales to become? We do have devolution now, and we are responsible for it. So what are we going to do about it? At what stage did you become a sympathiser and then a member of Plaid Cymru? I'd been involved with Cymdeithas Riaith, the Welsh Language Society, during the 80s. I think I gradually moved into sort of mainstream politics as opposed to the sort of special interest groups. Back in sort of the mid-90s, we had a campaign in the school in Morva because we had a, a large number of children. And the primary school, or the, the infant school in Morva, uh, and it still, is, it still is the case because I wasn't successful, it was a very, lar- very large year and they were really, which either school they went to when they finished their time in Morva, would have been dealing with a, a large number of children. We were asking, why can't they just stay here? And um, and it was that actually the the the, the cut and thrust of, of not just talking about stuff, but trying to make a difference. Then I was encouraged, and I did, and much to my surprise, I stood. I I got into the county council in two thousand and four. We had a lot of issues with schools. You know, surprisingly, I had little children then, but, and I was also working in education, so it wasn't that surprising that I was particularly involved with that. We had a lot of issues with schools in 2008 when there was a, quite a bit of change in Gwynedd County Council, the council membership. Slice Gwynedd. Slice came about then. I got back in again. I then took responsibility for the uh, education portfolio, which was a very much a learning experience because you're balancing... What I think politics should do in many ways, you're balancing trying to behave with ethics, trying to communicate with people, and actually the real-time resources that you have at any, at any one time. So when we were dealing, we, we, we dealt with Merionid as the area because that was where the, the greatest extreme was in the number of children, that you know, the, the schools were very small numbers of children, and the sense that if we are talking about closing a school in perhaps on the, the coastal Abadovi area, more of the English-speaking area. And we were fortunate at the time that there was money at least to develop new schools. So there was a sense of, yes, we appreciate this is a terrible thing to this community, although this is the way that the numbers of children in that community is going, whether we like it or not, sadly. But we will be able to build you new resources somewhere else. When we did that with Abadovi, although it was politically agony, um, to do the same thing with Pentlin and Park. And there were people saying, you can't do that because this is a Welsh-speaking community. And I could not in my heart say that you can do it to Abu Dhabi, but you can't do it to Park. And that, although that, that remains the hardest political experience that I've had of my life, but nonetheless, I do think that the fact that I've had to be, I've, I've had to go through the real political responsibility holding as opposed to just being in opposition and holding people to account because constant the constant state of being opposition means you're never wrong. Now that's not necessarily that's not real politics. That we need to come back 
to the question for Wales and devolution and the question of independence in the future, who should not be, who honestly says to other people, no, you shouldn't be responsible for your own decisions? There are plenty of people who write letters to the Western Mail. They do, but that, that's what I would, in all honesty, you saying that you're happy that we don't, we don't develop responsibility for ourselves. There are not many places which um, have a situation where it has been said the population of a country is content for centuries to be run by the next-door neighbour. I agree entirely. There is the gradualist approach, there is the, 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 the all-in approach of independence. Evidently, devolution creates its own... We'll talk about the devolution divergence. It's very interesting to come back to my job, my work here in Westminster with justice is you can just see because you have housing, health and education are devolved areas, when it comes to uh, rehabilitation of prisoners, how we manage probation, how we manage, manage prisons, actually it has to be done in, in different ways in Wales because you're just not dealing with the same set of uh, policies, um, the same group of people who are responsible. And it was really interesting, we're forever sort of pushing the edge of devolution of criminal justice, but it, it will inevitably come. Westminster will do its best to deny it, but already we have a difference there, a different approach. We have the sense that of devolution being, if you like, a, a valve through which we can go through, but it won't come back again. Now, I do suspect that under the sort of the, the Brexit British ideology which is sort of affecting Westminster that there will be resistance to further devolution but nonetheless if we have determined people with vision in power in Wales then we will see further and further opportunities for us to take responsibility for ourselves and to me that if I could just reiterate that 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 argument towards independence as to why would you not want to be self-sufficient? What is the virtue of being dependent on others? What is the virtue of always putting the blame on somebody else for making the decision, but avoiding taking the decision yourself because you're afraid of taking the responsibility? Oh, come on, come on. Now, of course, just to focus on you again for a um, uh, moment, Liz, you had got into a position of uh, senior executive authority with Gwynedd County county council as a councillor as a councillor yeah so uh, 2010 came along Holvin Floyd was standing down as the MP how did it come about that you became the prime candidate what made you want to go in that direction then I'd been encouraged back in 2003 to stand for one of the regional lists for the assembly and as an aside that's a classic way of making women do things if, pe if people don't encourage you to do it as a woman, you generally think we're very, very good at totting up all the reasons why you shouldn't. So you, somebody needs to give you a push. That was the first point, really, and that, and that led to me becoming a councillor. Because I think if I hadn't been sort of pushed in that direction, I would have been sort of potted on. I think it was it was 2013 that Elvin announced he was going to stand down, and he actually stood down in 2015. So there was the nomination process, and I I had. In the intervening time between 2003, I'd stood for a number of assembly seats and not been successful. It does hurt when you don't get in. It's a very emotional experience. Parties don't enjoy nomination selection processes because the people that you normally get on with really well, you suddenly all turn in on each other and um, you know, obviously you're, you're competing to, to win it. 
Um, and I thought, am I going to do this? Am I going to do this? And again, I was encouraged by some fellow county councillors, particularly Selwyn Griffith of Portman Dog. And then when, when, again, if you have enough people saying, believing in you, so to speak, I, I put myself forward. And there were, initially there were five other, there were six of us in all. That dropped down to five. And then with campaigning, going back, this is going back to December 2013, I was you know, very, very honoured to have the nomination, frankly. And of course, it is essentially Plaid Cymru's safest seat. So when you were selected, you must have known that you were going to end up yeah, in Yeah, but you, you're always afraid that you're the person that will lose the seat to Plaid Cymru or whoever party it is. You try and look at it empirically, scientifically. You don't know how X number of people are going to vote. You know, I, I've, I've, I've always been very cynical about, um, or very, very cautious about trying to estimate results of elections. You know, well, I, until we get them in, I don't know. You know, so so yes, it is. I mean, it is Plaid Cymru's safer seat, but nonetheless, Plaid has to work for its seats. We can't assume it. We we don't have the presence without whinging about it. We simply don't have the presence, obviously, in the the national UK press which carries the other parties, so we have to work for every vote. So 2015 comes, you get elected. In the previous parliament, of course, there had been no overall majority, so there had been a coalition between the Tories and the Lib Dems, and many people had the expectation that that sort of scenario would perhaps continue, uh, but rather surprisingly, the Tories ended up with an overall majority. What challenges did that pose to Plaid Cymru at the time? Oh, well, you're asking somebody whose first experience... I mean, whenever you land in Westminster, the first six months are just a, a blur of incomprehension. I think what we saw, certainly, was that the, I mean, the Lib Dems had been decimated at, at the time. I think Nick Clegg was one of the few who survived, and, of course, he didn't survive later on. And then, very swiftly on, we had the Labour leadership question as well, and we were working towards the referendum in 2016, although I think it's safe to say with hindsight that for all of us who campaigned for Remain, none of us then really knew what we were up against. And there was that, I, mean, I will speak plainly, there was an assumption that Remain would win. And we were in a different world as it comes to the influence of social media. I think that changed between 2015 and 2016 and probably will never be the same again. Although I imagine we will, all of us probably become more sophisticated in our response to it. Didn't take all that long for you to become the parliamentary leader? Oh, it did take a bit. That was, that happened after 2017. That happened after the general election. I mean, and that in itself is an honour, although, I mean, frankly, there were three of us before 2017 I'm delighted that there are now four of us because you can imagine when you're splitting up the portfolios, departmental subjects of Westminster, among four people makes it a lot easier than among three people. We work very closely together. We, we really have to work closely together because otherwise it wouldn't function. So there is a sense that there are different roles and the status of the role is not so important. We're all of us firing in different ways as part of a team. But as the parliamentary leader now, you get into meetings that... MPs who are members of bigger parties, who may be backbenchers or, or maybe frontbench spokespeople, would not get into. So you're, in a sense, at a different level of politics from many other MPs, aren't you? 
Well, that's probably true in the sense that, I mean, partly in our relationship with the media, there we are a different voice, so that we do get an opportunity to be to be seen and to be heard in a way that many other backbench MPs don't per se. I mean, that would be true for Ply Cymru, the, the, the four of us here. I think that's, that's true. Um, but nonetheless, yes, I, I would meet the Prime Minister mostly with other with leaders of other parties. There is a real sense here, although Westminster obviously has its... It apportions the your status to the size of the party in which you you know which you operate, um, how long you've been here, but there is also a, a time to take. This is a voice that will not be heard unless unless we are heard now. Cumbria's voice must be heard, and that has resonance. That is believed here. We are, we do get to contribute. I must almost as instinctively. I wouldn't want to play that up because actually the sense of the real time experience of being. In operation here is extremely frustrating at the moment. It's like we're living in a constant re-roll of a soap opera where we're talking about personalities. Is it Johnson did this, Johnson did that? A little bit of mention of, of, of Jeremy Hunt. And we're talking about this sort of playground scenario of personalities when the really big problems are just being sort of held in abeyance out there. We've got Brexit on the way, we've got economic problems, we've got social problems, and we're still talking about these collection of public school boys and who did what to who. It's it's as soon as you start to describe it, it is immensely inadequate for the challenges we're facing. <laughs> well, a few months ago, when uh, the UK was given an extension to Article 50, Donald Tusk said, you're getting your extension, don't waste your time. No, you Are they taking that advice? They're not even taking action on the Brecon and Radnorshire writ, which is won by-election because a Tory MP who has been reselected to contest this election when it actually occurs had been fraudulent in the way that he'd made his expenses. On the larger scale, no, and... and, and it's, it's, it, this is in a cahoots between the UK press and the government. It's all about these personalities who are talking about what they would do when they get power with things that they just can't do. We have a politics of tell people what they want to hear because that will do me good, that will get me the job. The fact that you won't be able to do it and effectively, you are lying. And either you know you're lying, or you're too thick to understand what you're talking about, to be blunt. But yet, uh, what we use as the means for making the big, big decisions that affect our society, which is what politics is, you know, it's being tre treated as a, as a spectator sport, as a form of entertainment. Now, when are we going to grow up out of the fact that politicians are not solely here to be entertainers? that they actually do make these difficult decisions. Because if you haven't got elected, democratically elected politicians to make those decisions, somebody who isn't democratically elected is going to be doing it. And it's a sort of a wake-up call. I think, think the sense that this wake-up call is there is out there, but it's a difficult learning process. I remember talking to you a few months ago at the Plaid Cymru Spring Conference in Bangor. And at that time, 
you were considering uh, seeking the nomination for the Assembly seat. Now, obviously, something happened in the intervening period which meant that you pulled back from that. Yeah. Uh, do, I mean, do you still have aspirations to go to the Assembly, and what is it that stopped you going for okay. it on this occasion? I would love I would love to go to the Assembly. You heard me talking about education. So is that, that sense of not doing just the sort of... Um, synchronised nastiness, which is a lot of what politics feels like in Westminster. What I had hoped would happen was that there would be some clarity as to what was happening here in Westminster by the end of March. And there has been no no clarity here. And that lack of clarity is just rolling on. And then there's a sense of, well, in all honesty, where am I most useful? I hope that I have some, that I've developed some sort of connections here, links here, that I can influence things as best I can here. And to put somebody new in here from Duvo Merionev, as things stand, would be quite a nightmare experience. So after quite a bit of talking amongst people locally as to what they would like me to do, frankly, the fact that Brexit is just rolling on in its sort of Hieronymus Bosch fashion here meant that I... I honestly felt this is the best place to be. Now, of course, another element in all this is the fact that since the Assembly was established in 1999, the constituency that you represent has been represented at Cardiff by David Ellis Thomas. And David Ellis Thomas, of course, is a former MP who in 1999 was elected as an AM. The constituency... Uh, was slightly different in those days, but um, he is the sitting AM for Gribble Merionith. Having left Plaid Cymru a few months after the last election, and um, essentially now he is uh, Deputy Minister for Culture and Sport in Labour administration. Now, whatever one says about David Ellis Thomas, he is someone who has an immense presence. And people have said to me, in terms of looking forward to the next election, and of course it's not at this stage clear whether he's going to stand or not, but people have said to me that, uh, and this is people within Plaid Cymru, have said to me that if you been the candidate, you could have beaten him. But it, he will be more difficult to beat by a new candidate who is relatively unknown. Tell me what your perception is of what David Ellis Thomas has done by not having a by-election. I mean, he was never going to have a by-election, but what, what do you think about the, if you like, the morality of that? And also the, the level of difficulty that may be involved in defeating him if he stands again in 2021. I... I think, from the natural justice point of view, which David is very fond of quoting, I think he should have stood a by-election. There are people who campaigned for him to keep his seat at the last Assembly election who'd campaigned for him over 50 years. And he was unnecessarily dismissive of those people and also unnecessarily dismissive of the people of Duvo Merioneth who voted him in as a Plaid Cymru Assembly member. Now, I don't know what David will do in the next Assembly election. 
He is a very able man, and he will be in his late 70s if he does stand and at the end of the following term. I think from Plaid's point of view, there are the candidates who are standing. I think there are... Well, the candidates who are standing are very able, and Plaid will pull together behind them to make sure that they campaign effectively. And we shall we shall know very soon who will be the who will be nominated. How confident are you that he can be defeated? Plaid Cymru has an effective party mechanism in Duval Mevionev. To stand as an independent in a constituency the size of Duvamerionith, with its many and varied communities, without that mechanism, to campaign there and to win under the circumstances, and the, frankly, immense frustration that many members and supporters, and natural supporters of Plykemri field towards David Ellis Thomas, would be challenging. What kind of personal relations do you have with him now? I will always work with David Ellis Thomas when I need to in relation to the, the constituency itself. Um, we very recently had, very, very sadly, a family business has gone into liquidation. And first and foremost, if either of us can do anything to help in that situation, I have contacted him, he has responded, and we will do the best we can. So uh, for myself, and I would do this with any other any other political relationship, if it comes to making a difference to something in a crisis, that sort of situation within the constituency, that cuts across all the the way that we treat and discuss each other. At the same time, I think that there is a risk in somebody, and this is true for David Ellis Thomas, there is a risk if you assume your place within a constituency. And we must bear in mind that the, the constituency is... It, it, needs effective, focused political representation. We have many wonderful tourism businesses, but we need more than tourism businesses in Duval Merionev. And we need to find those sorts of jobs. We know the public sector jobs are still suffering from the, the effects of the austerity agenda with the, the, the ongoing cuts to budgets. There's not going to be more jobs in public sector, and we have been very dependent on those in the past. So we need to build that, because if we don't do that, that cycle of losing our young people, losing their ability to afford homes, we're on a cycle that is difficult to get out of. And we need energy to make sure that we build what a better future for that. What prospect do you think Plaid Cymru realistically has of entering government uh, in Wales in 2021? To speak... Plainly, I and forgive me, I'm a politician, but and I'll try to put aside some of what I would obviously say. But I think what there is a great sense of frustration with Labour. There's a great sense that Labour is they own all the chairs and they'll make sure it's their own bodies who sit on them, and it's just a matter of switching it around. I don't get a sense of ambition. I get a sense of assuming the right to be there, and that Plaid Cymru's duty is to switch on that sense of politics and excitement and ambition for Wales, because, in all honesty, otherwise, why would we even have devolution? And if we don't have devolution, where do we go from there? So it's all to play for, for Plaid Cymru, and if we have the guts and the energy and the leadership, it's there for us.
But labour as things stand, there's just this sense of worn outness. Lisa Roberts, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Thank you.